0: Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to 1 Corinthians 2. I'm a little surprised at the caution that the Holy Spirit has given me regarding moving forward into Romans 7 without covering what we're getting ready to look at both last week and and today. Last week we dealt with the concepts of the solical, the carnal, and the spiritual man. So let's read through this passage. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. We're going to read to chapter 3, verse 4. We'll talk about that briefly, and then we'll move on. Starting in verse 14, it says, But a natural man, a soulical man, the Greek word there is Sukikos. and the idea is, is someone who operates in the soul, the mind, will, and emotions, devoid of the Holy Spirit. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised or judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as a spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy, And strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Let's take a moment and ask the Lord's blessing over what we're going through today. Father, we pray that the Spirit would illuminate the Word to our understanding, give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Help us to see clearly our condition and where we stand as either carnal or spiritual believers and help us to proceed accordingly, according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Probably the greatest struggle that we've ever had in the church is the lives of believers being manifest to be less than that of the Spirit coming through them. Now, understand what I'm not saying. I am not advocating perfection. In fact, when the Bible uses the word perfection, it's talking about maturity. It's not talking about, you just don't ever sin anymore. 1 John 1 verses 8 through 10 will quickly snap us into place regarding that. Perfection is not possible in this life. That's part of glorification. But because many times we see that the lives that are being conducted by believers in the world end up being something that actually brings repose to the name of Christ rather than rejoicing in the name of Christ, we've had a lot of reactions that have been unbiblical to that. And the reaction to it should be grace. A lot of times it's works. If you've ever been in that situation and somebody come along, if they say to you, you just need to get your act together. I think it's important to recognize that they're asking you to do the impossible. And that's when it's okay to reply and say, you just need to get your act together. And then have a competition. That always works out well. We've just received some little booklets Uh, from our friend Charlie Bing that are out there at the Welcome Center on the right-hand side and right in front of the coffee pots there. And it's called, What is Lordship Salvation? It's a small little booklet. You can take it and you can read it, but it tells you about the abuses that have been formulated because of carnality in the church. The fact that there are the reality of carnal Christians. And so the conclusion that needs to come to today is number one, determining where you're at. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. It can never be lost. Your sins are forgiven. Understand that. Absolutely. You are locked up. You are assured. There is no reason whatsoever to doubt your eternal destiny being with the Lord forever. None. But how we live in this life matters. And when we are flippant about that, when we are careless about that, when God has given us 66 books that he has written himself that he wants us to know about him, And we have disregarded that, thrown up our hands and said, nah, whatever. I know that's what it says, but here's what I want to do. We end up in a world of hurt of living much less than what he's provided for us to live. Everybody with me? Everybody with me? Okay, I heard two people over here, one over here. Make sure everybody's with me. So here's what I want us to look over. It's number one, I've got us a test case. In fact, I've actually pulled four test cases. You know how long I could preach, so I'm only going to do one. So we're gonna look at one test case to see how that applies to us. But first I wanna go over some information so that we understand about the carnal man. Mitch, let's bring this up. This is from the handout from last week. If you have that, if you don't, we can get you copies of it. It's not a problem. The carnal man is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but continues to hold hands with the world and with himself. This is also commonly called the self-life. Mitch, am I on? I muted my mic. Let me check my rear end here. It's red. There it is. Check. One, two. God. There we go. Yeah. See? Just call his name. There it is. This is also commonly called the self-life. The carnal man looks inward, measuring performance keeping tabs on himself and comparing his performance to others, uh, is often defeated in living a holy life while wishing that others would see and applaud his sincere effort. In other words, one of the great things that characterizes the carnal Christian is not so much depraved behavior. That's easy to recognize, yes? We can look at a situation and say, well, yeah, that's sin, that's wrong, I don't know why they're doing that. God's got infinitely better. Well, one part that we don't talk about is the idea of they're constantly trying to do better. Because it often looks like, look at me, look at me, look at me, and it equals to be law keeping. In other words, it's legalism is what it is. It's not just, oh, they're doing bad things. It's that they're trying the wrong way to do good things so that they would be the center of attention. How about the next one? Their will may be sincere in seeking to do good but their ability falls short. All of their works are fleshly and have no merit before the Lord because they are devoid of the Spirit. I think that's important to understand how serious this is. God is Spirit, and He is seeking those to worship Him in Spirit and truth, yes? Notice He never says flesh. The flesh cannot worship God. That's important for us to understand. And as long as we're on this earth, We're going to have the flesh constantly warring against the Spirit for control. It happens. And what we're going to be looking at over the next month is, how do you get the Spirit's victory as a constant reality in your life? That's what we're looking for. But we've got to address this first. So all the works are fleshly, have no merit before the Lord because they're devoid of the Spirit. This is always the condition of those who have stunted growth, though they have been a believer for many years, but have remained an infant in Christ. Hebrews 5 is one of the greatest realities of that. let's go to the next one. Because where in the world does this happen? I want to give you something logistically to look at. If you want to write it down, that would probably be helpful. And then we'll move to our test case. What separates a carnal Christian from a spiritual Christian? Maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, man, I'm listening to this. I see what the word has to say about it. And I have to come to the conclusion that I'm a carnal Christian. I know I'm saved. I know I've got the indwelling Holy Spirit. We usually get all eeyore about our theology, right? Well, I'm not living like I should. We kind of do that thing. So, how do you how do you move from the realm of carnality where you're letting your soul run amok and it be the leader, your mind and your will and your emotions, and instead look for all that you have in the spirit and where the indwelling of the Holy Spirit has taken place in your life so that all operates out of the Spirit and therefore influences your mind, will, and emotions to follow suit behind it. Or let's put it this way, for some of you who've been here for a while, how do you get your F train in order? That's what we're looking for. Number one, it depends on their reception of the truth. Are you open to the truth or are you hardened to the truth? Raise your hand if you love it when you're doing wrong and in sin and somebody points it out to you. Man, we love that. Praise God. My wife pointed it out to me the other day. Praise God for her in my life. I need that. What was my reaction? Right? You get the grumbles. You know it's true. And that's what makes it hurt so bad. Why? Because it humbles you. So, you're either open to receiving the truth, whether it becomes in the form of a rebuke and an encouragement, I'll guarantee you that honestly they're not much different, or at least shouldn't be. Are you open to it, or have you hardened yourself to the truth? And here's why that matters because if you've hardened yourself to the truth, you have no base from which to operate from. The truth resides in the spirit. If you don't have that, Mind, will, and emotions. How stable are your mind, will, and emotions? Right? I'm at straight jacket stage. I don't know about you guys. But I need the foundation of the truth. So am I open or am I closed to it? Am I hardened to it? The second thing, their belief in that truth. It's one thing to have the truth in front of you and go, yeah, that's what God said about it. It's another thing to say, and I'm convinced that I need to move in that direction. There's plenty of times we go, yeah, that's true. And we go and do what we want, right? I know that's true. And so we cover it up, we hide it away, right? Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Everybody remember that from Romans 1? That's how we often handle it. We know it's true, but we run the other direction. And so the question is, are we so convinced of that truth that we are going to allow that to propel our mind, will, and emotions in the way that God would have. Guys, that's called faith. That's what it is. I believe what God has said over what my logic, over what my feelings, and over what this compulsion, this inner compulsion that I have to indulge in the lusts and the things that I want instead. I believe God's word over those ready factors that are trying to convince me. And then there's the last one. If I'm saying, yes, that's true. If I'm going to walk forward in faith that that's true and receive it, trust it to move forward, then I need to present my body as an instrument of righteousness because of that truth. Lord, the members of my body want to do all kinds of crazy things, but here's what you've said in your word. And though everything in me wants to run in an opposite direction, I am trusting you. And what you've said to be the supreme authority in my life and I submit this broken body, this flesh to you so that you would use me for your glory. I want to manifest righteousness in my life. Is that a good prayer? Everybody notice that has got very little to do with the physical and everything to do with the spiritual. We need more spiritual prayers. So that's how we move from the carnal to the spiritual. Now let's look at a test case. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians. Now, you knew what we were dealing with was going to be in Corinthians, didn't you? And we love those people. Why do we love the Corinthians? Because they're just like us. We don't want to admit it, but they're just like us. They're making the same mistakes we make. So I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 6. We're going to start in verse 11. There seems to be some sort of friction that has taken place, probably by the induction of or the introduction of false teachers that have come through, people that are trying to lead the Corinthians astray, to where they've created doubts about Paul's authority and his apostleship. Now, to Paul's credit, you read through Second Corinthians and you're kind of overwhelmed with how much grace and love and compassion he has for those people. Some of us would have picked them up by the back of their britches and already kicked them out the back door. You know, a lot of us would have dealt with them in a very fleshly way. Paul, he's seeking to love them to the uttermost. And praise God for an example like that. But he brings up something that's extremely interesting that I think applies to us. Look at verse eleven, Second 2 Corinthians 6.11. Our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened. Wide now does that sound like a good thing? Paul is speaking freely and his heart is open wide that's a good thing. in other words, he's very honest with them about everything he has to say and teach and how he himself is feeling. Honesty is a good thing in the body of Christ in fact it's the essence of how true fellowship takes place. but look what happens after that verse 12 you are not restrained by us but you are restrained in your own. Everybody see that word affections? Now, if you've got the New American Standard, you've got a little mark there. Look over in your marginal note and look what it says. What does it say there? What's it say? Talk to me today. Don't be shy. The inward parts. Now, think about that. Paul is saying, I'm open with you. My heart is open to you. But you Corinthians are restrained and that restraining doesn't come because of us. It it comes because of something in you. Something in you is hindering the great love relationship that you could have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Something's holding it back. You've got a dam in place that is keeping the water from rushing forward. Look what he says after that. Now in a like exchange, and I love it, I speak to you as children. Notice it's like the gentle plea of a father to them. Open wide to us also. In other words, don't let anything hold you back anymore. Step forward and love freely. Don't raise your hand. But do you have some reserve today about loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do you only love the brothers and sisters in Christ that you talk to every Sunday, not those that you pass by and don't welcome to our church? See, I've noticed something since I moved up here. And that is that Wisconsin is a reserved people. We love our habitats. Kind of keep to ourselves kind of thing. And if you want to know one way that the church, the body of Christ, could be markedly different and exalting the grace that we've been given, it's to go beyond that and understand the extensive Christian love that we could have for one another because Christ has made it possible and begin to have genuine fellowship with one another. Genuine love relationships with one another. You say, well, Jeremy, that sounds like a Hallmark card. I don't know that I love everybody around me. That's okay. Remember this, you do not have the capacity to love your brothers and sisters because it's not a fleshly type of love. It's not a love where we're just trying to psych ourselves up and convince ourselves that I really need to care about this person. That's crazy. What it is, what it is, is recognizing how much does Jesus love you? I mean, isn't that the great commandment that Jesus left them with in John 13? A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as you feel like it. Praise God he didn't say that. You know why? Because that's rooted in the soul, the mind, will, and emotions. Instead, he gives you a godly example. Love one another as I have loved you. The model is Christ. Why should I love this person over here as my brother and sister? Well, I call a spiritual timeout and and ask the question, how much has Jesus loved me? All the way. Never failing, ever. There's my propulsion to love another person. Not because they deserve it. They never will. Not because you deserve it. You never will. I will never deserve your love. But isn't that the beauty of Jesus? He loves me anyway. So notice the problem here that the Corinthians are having is something is blocking them up. And so Paul needs to do an assessment. And this next verse we're going to, if we didn't know the previous context that he's going to deal with their problem to help them get beyond it, we wouldn't understand why it takes this breakneck left turn. It's not, it actually is very smooth. But we have to understand, Paul is going to dissect for them, why is your love in the body of Christ hindered? Why, or why is it so reserved? And look what he says. And I love it. It's real dramatic for me in my Bible because the next verse isn't until the next page. So I get done with this like, dun, dun, dun. Here it is. I get excited about stuff like that. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Now you might know this as do not be unequally yoked. And immediately we put that stamp on marriage, right? You know, the Bible says, don't be unequally yoked. And we say it's about marriage. Maybe. But it's not anywhere here in the context. In fact, that's a general statement that's given, and he's going to give us five different examples of how being unequally yoked with unbelievers is so incongruent to what God wants for our lives. The idea here is that if you were going to go out and plow a field, that you would put a donkey on one side of the yoke, you would put an ox on the other. Now, just height-wise, can you tell that your, your your little plow here is going to go wonky? Nobody wants to plant in circles, no. Everybody see how messed up that would be. No, you got to get them even on side, side by side, going the same distance, stopping at the same time, moving at the same time. They've got to be linked together in a way that makes sense. And here's what he's saying, the general statement. Any sort of linking together that we would have as the body of Christ with unbelievers will never work. It will never work. Was Corinth the carnal church? Yeah, in fact, we'd look at it and say, yeah, there's a lot going on there. One of the evidences is you see, as long as there's strife and jealousy amongst you and divisions, are you not walking as mere men? What's the problem there? A lot of worldly attitudes have been brought in as being acceptable in the church. They're not. The body of Christ is something different. The body of Christ has been called to be holy. That means that the ways of the world don't make sense here. We have got to get that in our minds. Well, this is the way we would do it. Well, time out is that a godly precept? Is it a moving forward by faith? Or is this a cleverly constructed conundrum that people have come up with? We've got to make those distinctions because the body of Christ was called to different and better. So he's going to unfold this right now. And what is he showing with it linked to the previous context? The church's association with the world will damn up their love for one another it will shore that up to where we can't love freely. Because as long as we are holding hands with the world, we cannot wrap our arms around our brothers and sisters. It's impossible. You cannot have it both ways. So now he's going to give you five things. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to label them either in your Bible or if you want to write them down. But there are five points that he brings up here that are drastically, drastically, incredibly important. You get what I mean. Here we go. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Number one, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Now, real quick, notice that there's a verb that's put forward, partnership. The idea of partnership means the idea of sharing or working together. Coming into this Commonality. And the first example he gives you is righteousness and what? Lawlessness. This speaks to morality. Morals. This isn't talking about justification righteousness. This is talking about how you live righteously in your life. Can you live righteously and lawlessly at the same time? No, you cannot. If the world is living in a lawlessness, how can the body of Christ hold hands with it? How can we be expected to be encouraged to operate in righteousness different from the world when we're embracing what the world has said as something that's acceptable? Guys, please understand this general tenet across the board. The world is unacceptable to God. That is why the cross was so necessary. It was in order to make a redemption possible. Because apart from the blood of Christ, there is no atonement for sin. And that's what lawlessness is. Call it what it is. It's not just speeding. It's not just cheating on taxes. It's not just underhanded deals. It's sin. And we have to recognize it for what it is. And so you find that the corruption of morality in the church, we've got enough to deal with with self wanting what it wants. But when we've locked arms with the world, we've been invited an in influence that should have never been there. How about the second one here? Or what fellowship, and that is the actual word koinonia and it means a joint participation with one another. In fact, this word fellowship is what is used constantly throughout to talk about Christian fellowship with one another, koinonia. What fellowship has light and darkness? So righteousness and lawlessness speaks of morality, morals, what we hold as true and dear and right. But the idea of light and darkness here deals with spiritual sensitivity. In other words, being sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to tell you something. It's going to shock some of you, but I hope not all of you. The Holy Spirit is God. He is not the third string redheaded stepchild of the Trinity. Baptists are scared to death of him. They think it's God, Jesus, and Bill Gaither. That's the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit comes in underneath there somewhere. He's not. The Holy Spirit indwells you if you are a believer in Christ. Let me ask you a question. Can you see his leading? Are you sensitive to his movement? Do you see his illumination of the text of Scripture when you open it? Do you submit yourself to him that he will lead you into all truth? I'm not being charismatic, I'm being biblical. Do we understand that it is the Spirit that convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Do we understand that He is the deposit within us to guarantee our future redemption? Get this, guys. That means that all hope we have of Christ's return is fueled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And when we receive the Word of God, He is the fire. This is the fuel. When we heap this on there and we combust. We need some combustible Christians. We need a lot more light and a lot less darkness. Are you sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading? Now, if that scares you to death, number one, I'm just going to tell you this, it's not going to do you any good, but don't let it. Number two, undertake a study of the scriptures in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, you find out that he's been given a label, comforter. Anybody here scared to death of a comforter? Not the one you have at home on your bed. Somebody wants to come along and love you further into the truth. Don't. Guys, we're spiritual people. This is a supernatural book. But sometimes it is our fear of the supernatural that keeps us from living supernaturally. And if we have allowed for the darkness of the world to come in, naturalism, we can say it that way. If I can't smell it, taste it, touch it, see it, or hear it, it doesn't really exist. That's what the world wants to tell us. How dare you believe in God? I talked to somebody about this lady that they were grilling for the Supreme Court situation. What's wrong with her? Oh, she's got a deep faith. Well, let's move to Europe. That's terrible, you know? Does everybody see that the world is scared to death of the supernatural? I'm convinced that if more of the supernatural was manifest in the church, the world may be scared to death, but they could not deny the power. Because that's where the power comes from in the church, the Holy Spirit. They couldn't deny the power of the church. Light has no fellowship with darkness. Number three or what harmony has Christ with Belial. You music lovers will appreciate this. This is actually the Greek word that we get the English word symphony from. It's the idea of everybody playing together and it is beautiful, awesome, epic. It's not like contemporary jazz music where everybody's playing something different at the same time. Uh, Hey, Carol, I love you today's jazz music is awful it's of the world okay so but the idea of harmony that's going on everybody's in tune there is no dissonance going on let me ask you a question is there any kind of symphonic congealing that is pleasing that takes place between christ and if you want to know what belial means it means satan The word in the Hebrew actually means wickedness, but it's used to delineate who Satan is. Christ and Satan shaking hands. They having coffee together. They talking about how best make the world go round. No, they're absolutely imposed. Unless you're a Mormon, they have no connection together. And yes, I'll go there. Because that's silly to think that Christ and Satan are brothers. That's a man-made doctrine. You cannot get in the Bible and conclude that. Satan hates Christ. So to think for some reason that this idea of, and here's what it talks about. What symphony, what harmony do Christ and Belial have, Christ and Satan? It's talking about authority. Where's the authority in your life? Everybody familiar with Ephesians two one. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Everybody remember that? In which we once walked according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Do you realize that if you don't have Christ, if you're lost, you're not a believer in Jesus. You've never believed in Jesus. Do you realize that whether you're aware or not, you serve Satan, period. Period. And that means that anything that would generate out of fleshly desires and lusts that we would have is completely in line with pleasing a satanic agenda. That's how serious sin is. And when we let the authority be what I want rather than what Christ has said, we've automatically chosen an authority. Everybody see that? Let me sum it up in a, in a way that might be easier to grasp. Um, Eve, did God really say that you can't eat of the tree? Everybody see that that's a questioning of authority? Everybody notice who questioned it. See that? If there is a questioning of the authority of Christ, it comes from one place. It's satanically originated. Regardless if it's us having doubts about things or whatever it is, it is a place of unbelief and therefore godlessness. And it has to be recognized for what it is. There's no harmony there. There's no harmony between those authorities. There are not competing authorities. Christ is overall. How about the fourth one here? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? In common. The idea is a portion of a whole. If you want, think of apple pie. I like apple pie, it's my favorite. But one piece. Can you imagine how odd it would be if you sat down to eat pie with some people? You had seven pieces that were apple and one that was chocolate silk. What is going on here? Somebody sabotaged. Your pie. Would that concern you? It would concern you for no other reason that you're scared to death somebody had their fingers on that piece, wouldn't it? Just the germ factor enough is to drive you away. But the pie has been compromised in some way. A portion of the whole. Let me ask you, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? If the first one we dealt with dealt with morals. The second one we dealt with was spiritual sensitivity. The third one that we dealt with was the idea of authority. This has to deal with the very nature of faith. A believer is one who believes. An unbeliever is one who does not believe. I don't know about you, but every problem I've ever had in walking with God has been because of my unbelief. That's why when I got here and we started with the foundational framework series, we constantly talked about the danger of unbelief, 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 unbelief. Why? Because with unbelief comes sin. I've already got, by itself, enough unbelief in my life. I need more belief. But if I've surrounded myself or I've tried to come in common with others who are not believers, Problem is compounded. Here's a short example of that. You ever had a decision in your life and you needed to seek some wisdom about it? Let me ask you a question. Did you go to a believer or an unbeliever? We often call it advice. Some people that get real out there call it horoscope. But there's all types of avenues of unbelief that we look for, for guidance in our life. Now, I don't know about you, but the fact that we need guidance in our life brings up two prominent points again, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. That's how you get guidance. You got your map, you got your GPS. Don't turn left here. That's a great thing about this GPS, it tells you what not to do. What's that? Recalculate. Yes, I tell you what, a believer who's in recalculate mode is in a good place because they're gonna get on a better path. You have to be aware of those things because that is a way that the church can end up holding hands with the world. Well, what about this next one, the fifth one? Or what agreements, what agreement, what unified mutual arrangement has the temple of God with idols? Anybody think that it would be slightly detestable if we had a whole lot of fat belly Buddhists sitting up here? That that bother you? What if we had a big pentagram flashed up on the screen right now? Anybody worried about that? Would it make sense? Would you be repulsed? I say, guys, we're we're, <laughs> we're just trying to be relevant amazing how much of relevancy is sin if the bible is the word of god it doesn't have to be relevant it is relevant it's always telling you the truth about everything the temple of god what room does it have for idols idols are of the world idols are from false gods the temple of god is yahweh elohim that's who we're dealing with the creator above all things Now. Here's what I love. Number one, does everybody see how incongruent the idea of being yoked together in a partnership with unbelievers is? Because here's, here's the mindset that I don't, well, how are we going to witness to people? Let me ask you a question. Are you witnessing to people right now? If so, I'd love to hear it. I want to know. Send me an email. Send me a text message. I just had this great experience talking to this person, conversation come up. I need to hear those things because that's encouraging. Knowing that you've been sensitive to the standing or unstanding with somebody else before a holy God and you want to be used by God in order to introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ so that he can usher them freely into the presence of God by his grace. I want to hear that. Tell me. But I've noticed that sometimes a lot of the Christians that want to give an argument and say, well, how are we going to witness to everybody if we're not supposed to be associating with the world, partnering with the world, have things in common with the world, be in harmony with the world? I find that those are the people that don't have evangelism on their radars at all. It's just an excuse to get an okay from the pastor. You'd be surprised how much that happens. To perpetuate sin in life. Sin is never okay. And if we spent more time evangelism, in evangelism, rather than reasoning how we're going to keep these traces and threadings of the world attached to us so that we can have our cake and eat it too because we think somehow that's euphoric happiness, I guarantee you if evangelism was that priority, we wouldn't want anything to do with the world. And the things of earth become what? strangely dim in the light of what is glory and grace. I guarantee you this. You're sharing your faith with other people when the Holy Spirit prompts you to do so. Glory and grace is happening. And you start to recognize just how whacked out this world is. Now here's what I love because it's just like Paul to lovingly drive home a point and then he wants to twist it on you like a corkscrew. He wants to get you. I love it when it grabs your heart. It hurts. But look what he says. For, there it is, right? What's that called? Your causal conjunction. See, you guys are learning stuff. It's good. Let me tell you why I just said that about the temple and idols. Look what he says. For we are the temple of the living God. Everybody see the pronoun? We? We, that means Paul and all y'all and means too and even the carnal Corinthians. We are the temple of the living God. You know what that has to do with? Idols in the temple of God? Worship. How in the world can you worship God in spirit and truth when you're entertaining idols that the world promotes? You can't. And Paul says that it doesn't make any sense because it's not like you have to go to the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. Everybody remember Old Testament temple? Really great, ornate, gold everywhere, sacrifices, everything's got to be done a certain way, but in the holy of holies rested the spirit of God. Yes. Where's the spirit of God at now? In the holy of holies. In our spirit. You are the temple of god everybody noticed that he doesn't take a baseball bat and whack them on the head he shows them the incompatibility of those things in five different ways and then he appeals to their identity in christ this is who you are so who you are cannot associate with who you're not it makes no sense it is completely incompatible you are the temple of the living god Just as God said, now watch this, I will dwell in them. Does that speak about what the Holy Spirit has done in you? Does the Holy Spirit indwell you? Some people don't seem so sure, because that's a good thing. I'm getting a yes. That's the right answer. Not yes. That's amazing. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, He dwells in me. Do you realize that if we got together and prayed towards a common end, that if we were in tune with the Spirit, None of us would be led in a different direction. All of us would be unified and moving forward. Why? Because it's not about my will be done. It's about the Holy Spirit taking the body of Christ and propelling them forward in victory. Does everybody see that? That's the power of the church. That's what happens. Because it's everything that Christ wants to do through us. Look what he says here. I will... Dwell in them and walk among them. I won't just reside in them. I'm going to engage them in their life's activity. The Holy Spirit wants to be involved in your day-to-day. If you've given him from 9 a.m. until 11.30 on Sunday, we got a sacrifice problem because we're not willing to crucify the flesh So that the spirit can be everything that God has designed that relationship to be. Can't say amen, you gotta say ouch. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. In other words, God is looking to publicly associate with us. Hebrews chapter 2, it says, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. You realize that? I think about the sin in my life. I sit here and think, Good grief, God is not ashamed to call me his child. He publicly promotes it. I'm an object of his grace. What, what, what? That's amazing. That's mind blowing. And the Corinthians were missing the already blessings they had. Look what he says, verse 17. Therefore, here's the command from Isaiah come out from their midst and be separate says the Lord. That's called holiness. That's called sanctification. He's calling in the original passage in Isaiah, Israel to come out from idolatry, to come out from numbness, to come out from lukewarmness, to come out from lackadaisical acting to come out from an association with the world in this passage. If you're looking at your life and you're finding traces of what you have in common or how you've held hands or how you've sought fellowship with the world, come out of that. Why? Because you are the temple of the living God. He does indwell you. He wants to engage you constantly. The Holy Spirit wants to be active, living, almighty God in our lives every day. What is the solution? There is something for us to do. We have to know the truth, receive the truth, and present our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Come out of that. See what is in your life that is worldly and cut ties with it. But I really love that. Isn't that the problem? The problem is is that our love is a divided love. And the idea that the world holds some of it, Go back to what we talked about at the first. Keeps us from freely loving our brothers and sisters. Christ. It's the world's influence. So now watch where he goes. Because he promotes intimacy. Verse 17, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament idea of this, you might often think dead bodies is the idea of not touching things that are unclean. How many dead bodies are we rolling around in our lives right now? Don't touch them, it's unclean. Notice what he says. And if you do that, notice it's conditional. If you do that, if you deal with worldliness in your life, as God has said, by separating from it, coming out from it, look what he says. I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Notice this isn't talking about your standing in Christ. This is talking about your state of intimacy with the Father. This is talking about walking in harmony with Jesus, not the world. So now, probably one of the worst chapter breaks I've ever found in my life. Whoever that guy is, he needs to have a talking to. I'm sure God's already done that in heaven. Chapter seven, verse one. Therefore. Yeah, what's that therefore? He tells you. Having these promises, what promises? What has God promised you? He's promised you that if you will forsake these worldly associations, because he has indwelt you, because he seeks to engage with you, because if you will come out from them, he wants to draw you into a greater intimate love relationship with himself. God wants us to walk with him, and he's made everything possible for us to do so. It is by His grace. Therefore, because of these promises, keep in mind the context, because of these promises, look what he says, Beloved, so notice he believes they're saved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Now, that in part there might mess you up, but hold on a second. Cleanse. The idea is a catharsis that needs to take place, a purification, a freedom. Something needs to be cleaned up because it's been tarnished in some way. Now notice, this right here deals with a negative command. It actually calls on you and I to take the initiative to institute purging in our life. In order to come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, because we were lost and are in our desperate need of salvation, Jesus Christ does all the work to make that possible and he provides everything that we need to live a godly life with him. But when we start to get worldly associations, we are told that we are to draw near to him and then he will draw near to us. We have to take the first step and that's exactly what Paul prescribes. Recognize what is worldly and purge it. Get rid of it. Deal with it. Somebody asked, or somebody texted me the most sincere thing last week. God love him. Beautiful, wonderful person. So, are you saying I got to get rid of all my Willie Nelson CDs? Out of all the things I said last week, that was the thing that messed him up the worst. Well, let me ask you a question How much of the world is Willie? That's for you to decide with the discernment of the Holy Spirit, not me. I'm not here to judge you, I'm not God of your life. Is it fostering intimacy with the Lord or is it hindering intimacy with the Lord? Ask yourself a question and answer it. Purge yourselves, cleanse ourselves from all defilement, all filth. And notice it says of flesh and spirit. And and I know if you've listened to me and I think about three of you have, you're gonna say, I'm just saying, you're gonna say, wait a second, I thought you said that our spirit was made righteous when the Holy Spirit came to indwell us. Very much so, that's the teaching of Scripture. So why does he say that the defilement of flesh and spirit needs to be dealt with? Why in the world do we have to cleanse ourselves from that? Here's the reason why. This is a literary device that is used in Scripture called a merism, And it's the idea of using two extremes because what it's actually talking about is everything in the middle. Does that make sense? So, you know, they need to be washed from head to toe. Are we talking about just scrub their hair and just clean their toenails? No, we're not. We're talking about the entire body needs to be clean. So that would be an example of what that looks like. Paul is using this figure of speech to communicate the idea. Don't leave any stone unturned in asking, how have I joined hands with the world? Examine it all and then cleanse yourself of it all. There's the negative, right? Now here's the positive. He says here, perfecting holiness. Is he talking about that I need to be sinless? It's not what he's talking about. He talks about here, bring it to completion. God's already given you everything that you need to be set apart and holy unto him. Come into compliance with that. Surrender. I love that song we sang, the second one. I've surrendered. Is that true? Could you say that with a clear conscience? Could you say, Lord, I'm holding up my hands and I am letting you arrest me unto your will. That's what it is. I have no rights here. I only want what Christ wants. So notice what he says, perfecting holiness, and then he gives you the attitude in the fear of God. Recognizing that there is an almighty creator that can just as easily snap a neck as love a neck. That he is the God over all things, that he does control the weather, that he can make tumultuous waves be still in an instant that he can look at a tomb and say, get up! And the person will stand and hop out. The fear of God. Having a sober understanding. How do you move from the carnal to the spiritual? First thing we need to recognize is our identity in Christ. It's where it always starts. Who are you? Because of what God has said about you, because of what Jesus has said about you. You are the temple of the living God. I am the temple of the living God. He has gone to great lengths to indwell me and wants to engage me and walk with me. And if I will step out from under that worldliness, if I will take the initiative because of that truth in my life and say, you know what, that worldliness, not worth it. Your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, right? Get rid of it. That's not talking about self-mutilation. That's talking about deal decisively and exactly with your sin and get out of that mess. Cleanse yourself of the filth. And that what you will find all of a sudden is that the dam that kept you from loving your brother and sister freely in Christ, which is so essential to your sanctification, to growing in holiness, all of a sudden that's gone. Why? Because the burden is gone. The expectation is gone. The worldly parameters of how we should look, act, feel, dress ourselves, all this other mess. You ever notice that the world's really about law? Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Man, get rid of all that junk. Promote grace. Thank God for grace. And coming out from under that proper attitude in the fear of God, it means humbling ourselves, recognizing who He is, recognizing that He's worth it, taking those steps. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to preach, pray. Which means I'm going to sum everything up for you, but I'm also going to ask God to bring conviction on us over this so that we'll deal with it. Father, thank you for who we are in Christ. Thank you, God, for the goodness that you show us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you, God, that you've not left us by ourselves to live this life but you have established a new identity in us. Father, help us to recognize the indwelling Holy Spirit, that he is God in us. He desires intimacy with us. And I pray, Father, you would bring to our minds and our hearts right now an undeniable conviction about where we hold hands with the world. Father, I pray that that night stay here. That we don't just leave it in the auditorium and walk away into the world again. That we would come out from their midst and be separated to you. Father, thank you that you've given us all truth, all knowledge, all power to be able to deal with and identify where our fellowship is skewed, and that Christ can cleanse accordingly. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and continue our worship together.